You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven, and my mate, Arthur Parkinson. And today we have somebody who I deeply admire called Dave Goulson, who is an entomologist. And I've read several of his books because he writes in a way that is so easy to get hold of and easy to feel inspired and motivated by. It's not too science speak and it's very kind of galvanizing, I find. And so I always read his books when they come out. And his latest book is called Silent Earth. Welcome, Dave. It's really lovely to have you, particularly on this one as we turn the year. And so with New Year aspirations, I thought you were the perfect person to have on the podcast because all of us need to make changes to our gardens and our lives, as we all know. And your book is is very inspiring in that way. So very, very welcome to you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, Sarah. Good. So I've got lots of questions and I'm sure Arthur has too. But I suppose the, the thing that I wanted us to talk about initially is what got you into insects particularly and why are you sort of so passionate about them in particular? I mean, all of, all three of us are passionate about the wild life out there, but with you, it's particularly insects. Yeah. I mean, the honest truth is I haven't got a clue why. I just kind of was fascinated by insects from a really early age, one of those kind of innate things, you know, we all have our different passions. And for me, it was always bugs. I, I start the book actually by talking about one of my my earliest memories where when I was, I think I was about five or six at primary school and uh, I, I saw these little yellow and black caterpillars on some weeds on the edge of the playground and I, I, my lunchbox was empty by that stage. So I filled it up with these little caterpillars and took them home and somehow worked out how to to rear them and they eventually turned into these beautiful red and black moths which listeners might recognize as uh, cinnabar moths very common creatures but beautiful and i was just completely hooked by that we call them burnet moths in nottingham <laughs> oh n- hang on i think burnet moths are Is that different a different thing yeah yeah oh. they they're superficially very similar they're both red and black adults but mm. but it, uh, google them you'll find burnet moths have very different caterpillars and they f- the feed on bird's foot treffle oh. whereas the uh, the cinnabar moths feed on ragwort as caterpillars but uh, both of them brightly colored because they're poisonous they uh, they're, they're advertising to birds you know don't eat me because i'm full of full of poison that they sequester from the plants they eat anyway that i mean so but i just I think lots of kids have a kind of bug phase, but then lose interest as they grow up. And I just never did. Um, and I've been really lucky, actually. You know, somehow I made a career out of chasing around after insects, which is which is you know a real privilege, I would say. 
And and I love the way you remind us not to think of them as creepy crawlies or bugs, even though you have actually, Dave, just call them bugs. But, <laughs> but um, um, you know, that they, they, they aren't. They're, it's sort of that immediately gives this terrible anti-bias, doesn't it? It makes us feel like, Ugh! and um and it isn't that what we should be looking at them is 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 with wonderment really that's what i love about this book is those stories that you put all the way through each of the chapters about sort of favorite insects and their amazing social anthropology and their sort of whole colony existence i find those totally wonderful and and so lively and and gripping Thank you. I, I was worried when I wrote the book that because some of it is obviously the topic is quite serious and mm. there was a danger that the whole thing could get deeply depressing and nobody would ever yeah. wade through mm. it to the end. So I tried to kind of lighten the whole thing by by kind of highlighting just how kind of amazing and fascinating insects are by putting in these little snippets all the way through to try and coax people yeah. through to the end where the which which is where we get to the kind of positive part of the book about what people can do to help. Yeah. Yeah, well we'll we'll come to that. But will will you give us um will you tell us a few of these stories of your your favorite insects? I mean, I know I remember Arthur sending me a message saying have you read Dave Goulson's book about the bumblebee's smelly feet? So will you tell us about that? Oh, bumblebee's smelly feet, I happily could talk about it for ages. Uh, I, actually, I spent <laughs> years studying their smelly feet. It was what really first drew me into studying bumblebees specifically about nearly 30 years ago now. I spotted a bit, I was just idly watching some bees in a, in a patch of comfrey flowers. And I noticed that the bees, they fly, of course, they fly from flower to flower, but they very often fly up to a flower with their little antennae out, and they get very close, but at the last minute they veer off as if there's something wrong yes. with that flower. And you can see this in any patch of flowers, in any garden, park, mm -hmm. you know, meadow, anyone could see this. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting, you know, what's, what's wrong with the flowers they're avoiding? And, and so I set out to try and find out, and it, as I say, it took quite a while in the end. It basically turns out that they fly up and they sniff a flower very quickly, and if they can detect the smelly footprint of a recent bee visitor to that flower, uh, then they, they know that it's probably empty. That previous bee will have taken the nectar and the pollen, and there's no point in wasting time landing and climbing into the flower. So they save themselves, and it's only maybe a second, half a second per flower. But bees mm. might visit 10,000 flowers a day. So if they can skip the empty ones, that you know, actually makes quite a difference. And the, the interesting thing is they don't deliberately mark the flowers. It's just that the, the cuticle of a bee, just like our skin, has oily hydrocarbons on it. And when they land on a flower, they accidentally leave a little kind of smelly footprint behind and uh, and that's what they then also use as a cue so whole thing really kind of cool i thought that's amazing yeah i mean insect lives are just full of that kind of thing if if we bother to stop and look yeah yeah and the bumblebee dave of course is is sort of seen as a, a flagship species isn't it how important do you think bumblebees are in in getting people engaged more i mean i speak to people who don't even garden lately and I think because bees are on so many products now and we know honey's a superfood and and that they are essential more and more. Do you think do you think people are registering that bees are wonderful more than when you first started out? I, absolutely, yeah. It's it's been 
great in recent years seeing this kind of growing wave of enthusiasm for mm. uh, for bees and this growing recognition of how important they are and they they've definitely act as a as a kind of flagship for insects generally and i i spend a lot of time trying to say to people well, just, you know, I agree bees are great, but just don't forget about all the others because actually no. pollination is done by lots of insects, not just bees. And other insects also do a whole bunch of other really important stuff that we couldn't do without. Uh, so it isn't just about pollination, but that's a great sort of, you know, foot in the door to, to mm. having a conversation with people about the broader importance of insects. Yeah. I should say that there's a lot of misconceptions about bees that you know although there is this sort of tide of enthusiasm for them it's it's often based on little knowledge and a lot of kind of misconceptions for example yeah. many people think that there's only one species of bee that and they imagine it as yellow and black and stripy and living in a hive and making honey which is some strange hybrid of a of a bumblebee and a honeybee in fact and of mm. course there's there's actually 20,000 species of bee and only one of them really that's domesticated the honeybee yeah um it's it's the wild bees that i'm more concerned about i read actually last week they've discovered a new population of honeybees in blenheim palace i don't know if you heard about that i did yeah generated a lot of controversy on twitter actually because um there was a little bit of skepticism as to whether this could really they they're claiming it's a kind of um sort of remnant population of the ancient honeybees that uh, uh, lived here before we started importing them from Europe a lot. But they haven't got any genetic evidence for that. And I don't want to sound oh, right. kind of sceptical, but but it, <laughs> I think they're slightly jumping the gun. Because there are commercial apiaries all around Blenheim Palace. It would be really odd if this population had somehow escaped mm. becoming interbred with, with other bees. But it would, time will tell. Yeah. I remember. Um hearing you talk and you were the first person who got me to love earwigs and the fact that you know we we all know and kind of are quite well versed in the fact or well not we all but gardeners we do get told that lacewing and ladybird larvae are very good at eating green fly but it was definitely you who taught me that earwigs also have a voracious appetite and love of munching through your aphids. And so they're actually our garden friends too, aren't they, rather than our enemies? They are. I mean, they do a little tiny bit of damage. They'll, they will nibble on blossom a bit in the spring. And uh, you'll occasionally see them nibbling on, on fruit, but only usually bruised fruit. So they, they're pretty trivial as pests. And the, what the good they do is is much more important than the harm because, as you say, their their favourite food are, are aphids. So it makes me really sad that uh, you still to this day, if you go to your local garden centre or DIY shop and look at the the huge shelves of pesticides, you'll see bottles of you know bug spray, bug clear, whatever they mm. all got loads of different names. And often amongst the insects pictured on the bottle, there'll be an earwig, which mm. um, I I think is terribly sad. I mean, I'd rather there weren't any pesticides at all, frankly, but that's another story. Yeah, yeah. Well, we might come on to that. But will you tell us the, the story of the trial that was done, I think, at Westmoreland in Kent with an orchard that had earwigs imported and an orchard that didn't and that the orchard that had the earwigs imported had a larger harvest? I'm sure I heard that through you. Yeah. I, I mean, actually, there's... 
I haven't read that that paper for a while now, but what I do recall is that they estimated that the predation of uh, orchard pests done by a healthy earwig population is is a similar uh, order of magnitude to spraying three times with insecticide. Mm. So a healthy Incredible. earwig population saves the farmer having to go out three times a year. And but the sad reality, I mean, actually earwigs they breed rather slowly. They only have one generation a year. Uh, so if you do spray an orchard, it's very easy to wipe out the earwig population entirely. And then you have to spray more because you've got no earwigs controlling the pests. So it, it's kind of dangerous. It could become a vicious circle. Yeah. And I mean, particularly with people who listen to this, because Arthur and I are so obsessed with dahlias, I think people are wary of earwigs because they do eat the ends off the petals. So what we've been encouraging people recently to do is you can still have your earwig nest with your straw on top of your bamboo cane, which is a very good earwig trap. But then rather than killing the earwigs, you can take them to somewhere where you've got an aphid infestation, like into your greenhouse if you've got tomatoes, and get them set on on just cleaning up all the white fly and the green fly, or you know, even lupin aphids or whatever. I know they don't flower at exactly the same time, but to encourage, you know, to use earwigs in a constructive rather than a, a sort of despised way, I suppose. Absolutely, I think that's a brilliant idea, and they're quite long-lived creatures. So, so um, you know, if you translocate them to a part of your garden where you need them, they'll be there for for months potentially uh, if a pest problem arises later in the year. Right. I want to ask you, Dave, about a pest that I've got very little adoration about, called the vine weevil. <laughs> Good. Question. And I say to people when I'm talking about them. I can't see how vine weevil fits into any food chain or does any good for anybody. So I just wondered if if they do do any good or are they just bad for people like me who could just garden in pots and have their grubs eating away at the roots and the adults then come out at night and eat eat the petals of my dahlias. I've, I used to blame the airwigs, but then I used to go out at night with my iPhone and I'd find the little rhino-like tank adult beetles on my dahlias making these horrible little half moons in each petal. So... Tell me more about vine weevils and why maybe I should be more. I, I'm not an expert on vine weevils, I have to say. <laughs> they are deeply annoying. I, I, I yes. struggle with them myself. There are some insects which are, are, are troublesome. There's no getting away from mm. it. Um, mm. I, I mean, they are, they, they are food for, you know, blue tits will happily hoover them up. My chickens can't even eat them. I can't see a blue tit trying to, to be honest. <laughs> Your chickens can't eat them? No, they turn They're, their nose that's off interesting. the grubs and the adults, but... I suppose maybe maybe a blue tit has a more interesting palate than a hen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I've seen blue tits eating them, but but from a distance, it's hard to tell exactly what they're eating. But that's what I'd assume to be the case. I mean, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? You know, I often get asked, "What is the point of vine weevils?" Or, or you could replace in that sentence slugs or wasps or aphids or mosquitoes or any number of things that people don't like. Mm. And usually, they they do have some positive role in ecosystems but but also i think you know maybe we need to be a bit more tolerant you know there and accept that there are creatures out there that don't necessarily do anything useful for us or maybe actively harmful to us Mm. but we shouldn't necessarily try to eradicate them from the planet you know um and putting up with a little bit of damage is often the the easiest way forward i think Mm. are there any other uh, insects that are, are particular loves for you, Dave. I mean, one of the profiles in the book. I mean, would would you um, 
Would you describe them to our listeners, one of them, your favourite? Oh, well, some of them are quite dark and sinister. I'm not sure I'd exactly call them my favourites, but they're certainly fascinating. I mean, insects do have these really weird lives. And, you know, if you judge them by human standards, they're pretty disturbing, many of them. Even bumblebees, which, you know, everybody loves a bumblebee, but it's pretty common for a queen bumblebee, for example, to eat her grandsons. Um, (laughs) So, you know, even they indulge in some pretty weird behaviours. But I mean, one of the most kind of peculiar creatures in 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 the book that I talk about is the emerald cockroach wasp, which sadly is not found in in Britain. Mm. But it's a it's a, a beautiful, as you can imagine, emerald green wasp that um, specialises in. It's a predator of cockroaches. Which, of course, many people would thank it for, cockroaches not being our favourite insects. So when it sees a cockroach, it pounces on it and it quickly stings it, which paralyses the cockroach. But then, once the cockroach is paralysed, the wasp very carefully inserts its sting into the precise part of the brain and stings it a second time. And this second sting knocks out, essentially removes kind of free will from the cockroach. It suddenly becomes unable to do anything for itself. Blimey. So the wasp then waits and the first sting wears off and the cockroach is no longer paralyzed, but it can't run away because of the second sting, which has damaged part of its brain. And then the the wasp, I mean, it's horrific, really. It, 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 um, Actually, for, for odd reasons, they chew off the antennae while they're waiting, or half the antennae of the poor cockroach while they're waiting for the first sting to wear off. But anyway, they then use the stub of the antennae to lead the cockroach like a dog. <laughs> and the cockroach is bigger than the wasp, but completely unable to resist. And the, so the wasp leads it to its nest, and the poor cockroach just trots along. Once in the nest, the wasp lays an egg on it. And the cockroach then just stands there um, while it's slowly devoured by the growing offspring of the wasp, eaten alive, poor thing. I mean, it's, it's absolutely <laughs> horrific. But it's, it's one of the many bizarre things that go on in the insect world. You can world. see why David Attenborough doesn't have the, that, perhaps. I mean, one of his... Oh. Well, I, I was going to say, I do think the nature documentaries have been given a a highlight to a lot more insects lately, Dave. Have you noticed that? I, I do watch all these nature biopics and I've been watching the courtship of spiders and beetles in this latest mating game thing. And also the the last episode was the most gorgeous footage of a, a monarch butterfly pupating on a milkweed plant. And they then followed the monarch because monarchs, according to David, they have the longest migration of any butterfly and they have to follow the milkweed because that's their host plant. So they fly mm-hmm. from all over America mm-hmm. right the way to the mountains in Mexico to then hibernate in these huge coniferous forests. So Dave, do you do you notice that insects are slowly becoming more sexy, more, you know, meaty in terms of their habits and televised a bit more? Have you noticed that? They, they're definitely televised more. I mean, I, I've been banging on about this for years, mm. about the lack of insects on television for years. And I, uh, so much so that I actually, probably 20 years ago, I wrote to David Attenborough and said, <laughs> you know, I love all your stuff, you know, fantastic. But why is it always about birds and mammals? You know, mm. what, what about the rest of nature? What about all the little yeah. things? And and actually, it was really interesting. He he, wrote, bless him. He wrote back to me within about two days, handwritten letter, 
saying that he completely agreed and he'd been trying to persuade the BBC to do something on insects for years, but they'd said mm. people weren't interested. Mm. And in fact, at the time, he'd, he'd only agreed to do the series Life of Mammals, which shows you how, how long ago we're talking now, because that's a while back, mm. yeah. in exchange for them subsequently allowing him to do something about insects, which eventually became Life in the Undergrowth. Mm. But you're right, it's, it, it's interest in these smaller things is growing. And I think actually, you know, people are probably bored of seeing programs about lions or whatever, mm. you know, how many wildlife <laughs> documentaries have we seen from East Africa over the years? Hundreds of them, um, entire yeah. series, you know, big cat diaries and whatever. What are, When yeah. there's thousands of, well, millions of species of insect with the most weird and amazing lives that have never once been on television. Yeah, yeah, mm. So it's great that uh, finally a bit of balance is, is returning. Yeah. yeah. When I was little, the first book I was given was the Hungry Caterpillar book which I know doesn't really relate to a specific species of caterpillar. And I notice in the bookshops now there's a book called Lost Worlds, which I think you, you mention in, in your book, you mention how insects and native wildlife are, are being lost because they're not in the dictionaries anymore. Uh, do you think schools have a major role to play in, in getting children within the curriculum interested in insects? Should there be like religious studies? Do you think there should be nature studies from you know key stage one right the way up to key stage four i do i mean 100% agree. i 100% agree i i list a whole bunch of things we could do in in towards the end of the book to engage mm. kids more and a, a big stumbling block at the moment is that they don't do much about nature in school and it's a bit of a catch 22 which is that most primary school teachers or secondary school teachers for that matter, aren't really comfortable with t you know taking the kids out into nature because they themselves don't know much about nature. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would love it if if there was built into the curriculum there was more nature studies, learning about all the, the wildlife that lives around us in our gardens and parks and so on. And perhaps yeah. also about food and farming and how to grow food. You know, it's amazing mm. how many kids grow up without ever having planted a seed, which I find really sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it could, it could be in the primary school curriculum. There could be a GCSE mm. in something like natural history. It would be great if there was the opportunity for for teachers to learn, so to you know, continuing professional development courses available in nature studies. So maybe they could go to a field studies council residential field centre for a week and and learn about you know common plants and animals and the things we've been talking about. I found that so fascinating in, in your book that when you describe about taking a group of students, first year students who are who are there to study ecology. And a high percentage of them didn't know what common garden birds were. A wren, I remember you said, which I just thought it was extraordinary, but also maybe less surprising me, I don't know, but that they couldn't recognize a sycamore or even common trees. And um, mm -hmm. I, I found that really absolutely the saddest thing when they must be interested in biology and in wildlife and in nature if they're wanting to study ecology. I completely agree. It's, it's dumbfounds me, you know. I, I just because I guess I absorbed all this stuff when I was growing up. I am still shocked to this day when I meet people that uh, by just how little they know about the natural world, the really basic stuff. And it's particularly surprising when they're 
students that have chosen to study ecology at university yeah. with pretty decent A-level grades. And yet, it shows that the, the school curriculum has included almost nothing about simple things like identification skills of common animals and plants. And it is symptomatic of a you know this this kind of nature de deficit disorder as it's, as it's sometimes called 80% of british people now live in cities um and you know they just don't get much opportunity to encounter nature and we somehow need to turn that around so i think doing much more in schools but also that, that could be helped if there was a policy of finding green spaces for schools to take kids to and perhaps one thing i've argued for is that schools could be twinned with a farm somewhere not too far away mm, and so yeah. all the kids in the school at least once a year go and visit a farm and mm. find out about how food is grown and where it comes from because i it really worries me that people are growing up you know thinking food just somehow magically materializes in the supermarket without realizing that they are part of nature that you know actually ultimately we all depend mm. upon a healthy ecosystem Mm. Uh, to feed us and i think most people don't really understand that no yeah. absolutely i wanted to ask dave how how you think supermarkets could help pollinators through packaging and things like that because i think that's a huge thing as we're picking up our apples and all the fruit should do you think there should be a thing a little sticker that says this is produced by um, honeybees you know would do you think that would help that's a nice idea. Never really thought about that. I mean, clearly, there's supermarkets do have huge influence in the whole kind mm. of food system. You know, they they can just control what farmers produce essentially by what they what they buy from them. And so, if they wanted to, they could do a great job. For example, of encouraging us to eat more local seasonal produce or produce that's been produced grown in ways that are more sustainable, more environmentally friendly, more bee friendly. They could do an awful lot at the moment. You know, I, I, I sadly think supermarkets aren't behaving in a sort of environmentally responsible way at all. Mm. Um, you know, they're happy to sell us cheap mass produced food flown in from all over the world at huge environmental cost. They don't really have any kind of moral standards, I don't think. No. But they could do. And it's a real shame. I think now might be the time to turn it to the positive because, of course, there are things that we can all do as gardeners particularly, but also as beings in communities. And I'd love to bring us on to that. One of the things that I thought was a, such a nice story was the Sterling research that one of your PhD students did, I think. And will, will you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, uh, so I, I think, you're probably referring to Lorna Blackmore's study of road verges. Was that was that exactly. what you were thinking yeah. of, Sarah? Yeah. Wildflower patches. Yeah. Sorry, we did a lot of research up at Sterling. I'm just checking we're oh, on the same okay. page. Yeah. So actually it's it start that story starts with a local campaign group. They heard me talking on the local radio about some bumblebees being on the verge of extinction. And they started a little campaign group that they called On the Verge. And essentially what they did was was badger the local council to let them dig up any bit of amenity grassland, boring mown grass they could find that was council-owned around the city of Stirling, and sow it with wildflowers. And they, they, so they did this on road verges, on uh, roundabouts. There's 
are patches of wildflowers next to a rugby pitch in a primary school field. And even in the women's prison in Stirling, there's now a, a little wildflower meadow, wow. um, which I think is brilliant. And they, so they've created more, more than 90 patches of wildflowers all the, around Stirling. And anyway, so we wanted to sort of evaluate how effective this was in terms of increasing numbers of pollinators. So Lorna, who was a, a, a student with me at the university, basically did insect counts, walked transects through these patches of flowers and through control patches of boring mown grass. And you'll not be surprised to hear, obviously, there was there was a huge increase in insect numbers. If I remember correctly, I think there were 50 times as many bees and 13 times as many hoverflies in these patches. Maybe the other way around. But anyway, an awful lot more pollinating yeah. insects, yeah. Um, which is, you know, nice to know and nice to be able to quantify the benefits to to insect life. And wouldn't it be great if that happened everywhere, you know, yeah. if every road verge, every roundabout, all around the, the country was full of flowers. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then sort of down right to our gardens. So maybe we could kind of finish off with you telling us what are the things that all of us should be doing in our gardens. I mean, obviously we know that we want to grow single well, not obviously, I keep saying obviously, nothing's obvious, <laughs> but we need to grow single rather than double varieties because the petals have been, the extra petals are produced by the, is it the nectaries are bred into extra petaloids? It's the, the, the stamens, the anthers that produce, sorry, the, right. the bits, the male parts of the flower right. have mutated into extra petals, which um, means there's, there's less pollen or no pollen and insects can't get into the nectar often because it's obscured by all these bundles of petals. Yes, yes. But on top of that, what uh, what should we all do? I mean, you know, it's a call to action. It's the beginning of the year or the end of one year, yeah. the beginning of another. And so let's really, between us, try and get a kind of list of, I, I don't know, maybe five changes or additions that we can make to our gardens that will really help the insect population of, of Britain. Yeah. I mean, this is a nice thing because unlike a lot of these big environmental issues, people can actually do something, you know, and feel, see the difference it makes. Um, you know, you, you plant some bee-friendly flowers and, and I guarantee the bees will find them. Yeah. It's, it's, um, and that's really rewarding. So, yeah, if, of course, the first thing is to grow more bee-friendly flowers or pollinator-friendly flowers. Yeah. And there's lots of advice out there. And many of your the seeds that you sell are fantastic for pollinators. I've made lots of YouTube videos about the best garden plants for pollinators and so on. Yeah. So that's there's lots of information on that. Um, I would suggest as well, if where people can, to include native wildflowers. There are some beautiful native wildflowers, things like Viper's Bugloss, Betony mm. uh, I, I grow in my garden, mm. and many others. And and they insects really love them, mm. and they look gorgeous in a in even in a, a neat, tidy, ornamental garden. Mm. Mm. So more of the right kinds of flowers, but then there's lots of other things that we can all do. So don't spray. I I personally uh, garden organically i think there's not, nothing you could do worse than grow lots of bee friendly plants to attract the insects and then spray them with insecticide which yeah. sadly some people do yeah. please please don't do that mm. i would urge people to to use no insecticides in a garden i just don't mm. personally think they're necessary so uh, then one of the other big things we can all think about is how we manage lawns yeah yeah really As, you know that. we are somewhat 
obsessed by mowing, aren't we? And, yeah. you know, trying to kind of recreate something that looks like a Wimbledon tennis court in our back garden with stripes up and down. My dad who's 89, is still aspires to this. Yeah. Um, and of course, actually, if you, if you just mow less, well, you use less petrol for a start, you save yourself time. And most lawns have got flowers in them that are just waiting for the chance to come into flower. And obviously, if you keep mowing, the, the buds just get chopped off. Yeah. But my lawn's full of flowers and I haven't sown anything. It, they were just all there waiting for their moment. Uh, and it looks beautiful in the summer. So um, if instead of mowing, you know, we could encourage people to to relax and get a deck chair out and, you know, make themselves a coffee and, and enjoy the bees, uh, much mm. better use of your time. And maybe just mow a path through it. Yes, yes. I mean, that makes it look much tidier. Yeah. And it, it's a good strategy, particularly for it, for kind of um, local authorities if they're thinking about, you know, leaving a park uncut, which I, I, is great, but people will often complain, say, it looks terrible. Why hasn't exactly. the park been cut? Exactly. Um, but if you, if you cut a little path through it and put a sign up saying Wildflower Meadow, it suddenly mm. it looks managed. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up local authorities. Because you mentioned about how the power of the letter, which I think a lot of us have forgotten about with online petitions, it's so easy to do an online petition, but you mentioned how letters to local authorities about how they can change management are far more powerful. So I'm going to make it a New Year's resolution to write to my local council and say, what are you doing to help? And if we all did that, I think the effect would be huge. There's, there's a sort of sad aspect of human behaviour is that we, I think on the whole, we're more likely to write a letter of complaint than one of congratulations. Mm. Yeah. So when councils do leave areas on moan, they'll probably receive some letters of complaint. But if they, if they get more letters of congratulations saying, brilliant, we yes. love it, please don't yes. mow it, you know, that's great, then they'll listen. If, if we just leave it to the, to, the, to the moaners, complainers, then the council may well revert to cutting because they think that's what people want. So it's, it's if encourage them to not cut and then thank them and send them a letter of support when they don't, uh, and that that I think is is a really powerful way forwards. And what we find here is we mow the edge, not, not just a, a path through our long areas of grass, but we actually mow a narrow strip down around the edge, and somehow again it makes it feel as if it's intended rather than just being left. So it's not like in a way you haven't got the hoover out. <laughs> it's that it, in terms of design, it seems to work really well. And because the garden here is open to the public sometimes, we just find that that makes an enormous difference to the feeling of kind of that it is being managed, but in a, in a way that isn't immaculate. And people are much more sympathetic to that somehow. They, they, they can take that on board much more easily. Yeah, that sounds sounds good. I might try that on at home. Actually, I'm looking out my window at my my front lawn, which I've turned over to a wildflower meadow, and my wife keeps telling me it looks awful. And uh, so maybe I'll try mowing around the edge very carefully. Uh, and you were about to finish with your last points about what we can do, and then and then we can wrap it up. But thank you so much. Let's hear the last our last New Year's resolution. Uh, well, so a couple of other projects. If you haven't got one and you've got room, a pond, even a tiny pond is fantastic for wildlife. We, we all know that. Um, it's amazing how much life and particularly insect life will turn up. Even if you, you know, sink a, an old sink or bath or some sort of container into the ground, it doesn't have to be big at all. Even a bucket is better than nothing. Do make sure there's things can climb out if they fall in. 
And then the final one for a bit of fun, why not make yourself a bee hotel or buy a mm. bee hotel? They they do work moderately well for solitary bees. I've got I've got dozens of them in my garden and it's a real joy in the spring to see mainly these little red mason bees, solitary bees, which are fantastic for pollinating all my apple trees, all nest in these little hotels on the wall of the house. And I sit and have a coffee every morning and watch them come and go. Lots of advice online about how to make a bee hotel or you can buy them from your local garden centre. Fabulous. And as you say, all this is like pyramid selling, isn't it? Which is if each of us goes and tells two of our friends a, a couple of things that they've heard on this podcast about what we can do, and each of those people go and do the same, then even a tiny thing that you know not many people listen to or whatever, or lots of people listen to, can build into a movement. And that's a very good end of year, new year message, I think, which is all of us can make a difference. And with Dave's book and with Dave's advice, both on YouTube and through his research, we can all make a difference and we should all make a difference. So thank you so much, Dave. It's been an absolute pleasure. Happy to come back another time. That would be great. So maybe we should make it an annual or a biennial and we can catch up with new research and new things that you found out, like the smelly feet of the bumblebee. (laughs) That would be great. Thanks for listening to such a thought-provoking episode of Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with Dave Goulson. And of course, he's on Instagram if you want to learn more about what we've spoken about during this episode. Next week, we're going to be talking about one of mine and Sarah's favourite stalwarts of the cutting garden. And they're also a very favourite flower of bees. They're the sweet peas and it's the perfect time to get sowing and selecting the best varieties to give you perfume, long stems and endless vases of the most gorgeous cut flowers. Join us then. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.